From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Tim Descher, and this is Heritage Explains. We've all seen the movies and TV shows, heard the music, and experienced the culture. From Pablo Escobar to Juan Valdez, to moving with a partner to the incredible music. Colombia has made its mark on the world. In fact, Colombia is a key pillar of stability and security in South America, as well as an economic leader. Now, because I've never been there before, much of my perspective on Colombia has been seen through pop culture. Some true, others fabricated. One thing that is largely not fabricated is cocaine, crime, and internal battles between the Colombian government and drug traffickers to keep the peace. That is until this happened a few years ago. The president of Colombia signed a new peace deal with FARC rebels this morning, about six weeks after voters narrowly rejected an earlier agreement. Days after that vote, President Juan Manuel Santos received the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts to end that five-decade-old war. But peace has not always been an easy target to hit. Former FARC rebel leaders announcing in late August they are returning to war. The reason, they say, President Ivan Duque is not implementing the 2016 peace accord. While there are several reasons the decades-long war is not over, General Alberto Mejia, commander of armed forces in Colombia, sums it up in a few short words. As long as there is coca and cocaine, those groups will have support to continue their fight against democracy and to continue their fight against civilian population. And he's right. While this real-life crime drama plays out in front of the world, Colombian cocaine has caused very real damage to Colombian peace and American culture. So can this peace accord last? Even with this agreement, Colombia continues to be the number one producer of cocaine in the world, which means the drug traffickers still have considerable power. So is peace possible? What is the U.S. role in this? And what does Venezuela and China have to do with it? Anna Quintana is a senior policy analyst here at the Heritage Foundation. This week, she talks about the strides the U.S. is taking in step with Colombia to secure peace and how this model can serve as a guidepost for the entire surrounding region. Anna, the paper that you recently released, Steps the U.S. Must Take to Secure Peace in Colombia. Now, from a lot of uh, surface knowledge that I have on Colombia, I picture it as a country kind of overrun by crime, Pablo Escobar, and the perennial theme for a show like Narcos. But, you know, you call Colombia one of the biggest success stories in Latin America. So I'm hoping you might be able to just surfacey clear some of this obvious ignorance up. Why such a stark contrast? 
yeah, I mean, shows like Narcos and all this like Pablo Escobar stuff, I mean, that that was Colombia 30 years ago, right? I mean, Colombia has made this like fundamental transformation from it being almost a failed state to now you go to Colombia and in the capital city, you walk by a Louis Vuitton and Ritz Carlton's. I mean, like there are luxury shops and luxury areas and it's just one of the most developed countries in South America. Granted, again, there are, there are still lingering problems. There are still lingering issues of underdevelopment. There's still problems of internally displaced people from the conflict that just ended recently. But to compare the country from, again, from where it was and to where it is now, and also just how the how, how media just tends to depict it, um, it's just, it's, it's inaccurate. Yeah, you talk about securing peace in Colombia, and, and one of, I'm, I'm curious to know, there's, there's so many elements to this, but what is one of the greatest challenges to doing that currently? Yeah, I, I mean, like one of the I think it's it's this there's just multiple layers, right? I mean, it's kind of like this like multiple layered kind of cake sort of situation because you have right now Colombia is trying to implement a peace agreement that it reached with the FARC. So the FARC it was is this narco terrorist organization that recently they've started demobilizing and kind of ending an over half a half a century long conflict, which is like the longest war in the Western Hemisphere, the longest civil war in the Western Hemisphere. So that's one, right? You now are demobilizing thousands, about 7,000 um, combatants, you know, former terrorists. So that's problem number one. Two, Colombia is still the largest producer of cocaine, mm. the largest producer of coca and the, lar- the largest grower of coca and the largest producer of cocaine in the entire world, right? Like 93, 94% of all cocaine that's captured in the United States comes from Colombia. It's problem number two. Um, and then you also have the situation of Venezuela, the Venezuela crisis. It's impacting Colombia more than any other country in the entire world from a security perspective in the sense that the Venezuelan regime continues to try to destabilize the regime. The, the government is out of Colombia and also because of the migrant exodus. You have about 5 million Venezuelans who have left the country so far. Uh, about nearly 2 million of them have permanently resettled inside of Colombia and the majority of them who leave by, by land – transit through Colombia. And, and and they go to Colombia because of the freedom, prosperity? What what, well, what is it, or just close? <laughs> it's it's proximity, okay. right? Yeah. It's it's proximity and it's convenience. And and so two million who've who've permanently resettled and also because of historic ties. Mm-hmm. So during Colombia's conflict Venezuela took in Colombians, which is this weird thing, right? People would never think Venezuela used to be a refugee and migrant receiving country, but that's what that was Venezuela's history. Hmm. And now these people who before were refugees inside of Venezuela are now going back to Colombia. And now the people who are fleeing Venezuela are going to Colombia and they're living in dire destitute conditions, but it's better than than Venezuela. And then the weird thing is people are just going into Colombia buying products receiving health care, and then going back home into Venezuela, which there's really no accurate numbers on that. Let's let's talk cocaine. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, like, I like starting a question that sure. way. But, but, okay. but it's, it's a huge thing because, you know, you say that they're the largest producer of cocaine in the world. Yes. And, and to me that says... While they might say, "Oh, we we're we're not for the produ- production," of the the government might say we're not for the production of cocaine. There's obviously a massive appetite to produce cocaine within the country. Can you talk about how uh, where where the government's official stance is and where the reality is? So, it, it, the United States has no greater ally 
in Latin America than the Colombian government, right? So Colombia is a major, it's NATO's only Latin American partner, right? Everybody talks about Brazil being a major non-NATO ally. That's insignificant to Colombia's relationship with NATO. That's one. Two, the U.S.-Colombia relationship could not be any deeper than what it is right now. The U.S.-Colombia's commitment to doing something about cocaine, I don't think, could be any deeper than what it is. I think the the key problems here are that cocaine production occurs in very remote areas. And two, the U.S. appetite and the Western European appetite and the willingness to pay for it. So every single time that we hear about that, that you know, American citizens are willing to pay you know, 10,000, 20,000 times the amount that cocaine costs to produce, there's going to be Colombians who are going to be willing to risk their lives to, to produce it because mm. just frankly, that's just the way the market works, right? If there's a demand for something, there the supply is going to be there to, to produce and it. And the infrastructure is there. <laughs> well, and then that's the, well, then this is the other key problem, right? Why does the infrastructure to transit continue to be there? And the mm. transit infrastructure is through Central America and to Mexico. And this mm. is where the key problems are, right? The fact that the transit countries continue to not have the security in place to stop drug production, drug, drug, drug transit. Um, so, but again, I think we just need to have deeper conversations in this country about why does our demand continue to exist? So cocaine is illegal in oh, Colombia. Absolutely. Oh God. It's, it's, it's illegal and it's just like demonized as a culture. And yet they're the largest producer in the world. That, that to me is, is, is very, um, uh, surprising. Overwhelmed by the 24 seven news cycle, looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters. The Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day, plus interviews with lawmakers, authors, Heritage Foundation experts, and more on the most important policy debates in America today. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. Okay, I want to talk about this this peace deal that was signed between the Colombian government and the FARC. What, What did that entail? Yeah, so so this peace deal it was negotiated under the previous administration. And I think that's important to know because there are some serious flaws in this peace agreement, right? This is not a perfect agreement. So this was negotiated by then leftist center left president Juan Manuel Juan Manuel Santos, and then under the previous administration, the United States under you know President Obama. So the United States had no role in the negotiation of the agreement, but you had a center left president who negotiated this agreement in Havana. Uh, as the Cuban government with the arbiters of the agreement, because the FARC at, it has always been a Marxist organization who wanted to bring a political revolution to Colombia, right? So finally, when the Colombian government was able to militarily defeat them, right, like on the battlefield, their numbers were reduced from 22,000 combatants to 7,000 combatants. Um, that's when they decided to to finally come to the negotiating table. And so in this agreement, there's, you know, uh, ideas for like how to have land reform, you know, how to kind of bring about some sort of land reform process, uh, drug policy process. How does FARC become a political party, which essentially I think there's a lot of tension in that thinking like, well, how do we rationalize thinking that a terrorist organization goes from being terrorist to now a political party. And FARC is a, considered a terrorist organization. Yes, the U.S. government, the uh. EU, and, well, the EU no longer considers them, considers, them, considers them a terrorist organization after the signing of the agreement, but Canada did, many international organizations yeah. and, and countries did. Um, and, so, and so this peace agreement essentially tries to find 
tries tried to find what were the sources that led to the Colombian conflict and prolonged the Colombian conflict, right? Because this was a conflict that lasted for 57 years, right? Imagine your country being in a civil war for 57 years. People got tired of the conflict, right? This is a this is a conflict that killed a quarter million Colombians wow. and displaced seven million people. So I think mm-hmm. something needed to be done, and granted, concessions needed to be made. But again, I think there there were some serious flaws in it. All right. So then you say that the U.S. should have an active role in in this peace agreement. How does the U.S. have a role in an internal agreement within the country of Colombia? What what can our role be? Sure. So, so the United States and Colombia, Colombia is again our our greatest ally in Latin America. The U.S. is the large. Colombia is our largest foreign aid recipient in Latin America. The U.S. is deeply invested in the future of Colombia because every time when we think of like, well, what's our greatest, uh, you know, priority inside of Latin America? Everybody thinks Cuba, this, that. I would say Mexico and Colombia. I would kind of honestly put those two on the same on the same tier. Colombia is the top cocaine producing country in the entire world. We need to get this right. We cannot afford to. There's no margin for error here. And so in, in the Colombia situation, right, this is a this is an area where how can the United States help work to help the conditions around the demobilized FARC, right? We obviously cannot support FARC directly because FARC is still a terrorist organization. Mm. But there's many issues in Colombia. Like it sounds very boring, but this is actually something that helps reduce violence with land titling. Much of Colombia is just ungoverned, untitled land. Like it's just land that random farmers have said, well, I control I this, I that. Imagine if you're a farmer and you think you own land and then the government or some criminal organization comes and takes that land from you. Mm. This is a thing that the U.S. government can actually play a role in. And also this helps prevent criminal organizations from coming in and saying, well, I'm stealing this land and I'm going to start planting cocaine. And all of a sudden, Colombia's cocaine numbers start going up. So instead of, you know producing cocaine, these farmers are now producing a legitimate crop that helps, you know, permanently decrease the the cocaine production numbers. Um, And then on the other side, I mean, there's the issue of the internally displaced people. Hmm. I think Colombians are IDPs. And now with this situation of Venezuelans, uh, the Venezuelan migrants, uh, these are the people who are most vulnerable to being recruited by criminal organizations. Do we want more people working for Colombian criminal organizations? Uh, Clearly not. Steps the U.S. must take to secure peace in Colombia is the name of the report. This is in-depth, folks. I want you to log on into the show notes, and I'll link to it, and you can you can read more in-depth about it. And so, um, moving on from here, I, just when I think I'm far enough away from China, it, it resurfaces. And <laughs> it, it, it's, it's constantly, they are constantly on the radar. We're constantly covering it on this show. And one of the things that you mentioned that we need to work with Colombia to combat is China's influence in the region. What What is China's mission down there? So China is such a... China's predatory economic practices in Latin America are so incredibly concerning, right? So in countries where we have a strong presence, where the U.S. has a strong presence, strong relationship, right, you would think this wouldn't be that much of an issue, this wouldn't be that much of a concern. Our partners, our allies, they get it, they understand it. But in Colombia, and this is a country that I never thought this would be that much of a challenge with, China right now, a Chinese state-owned enterprise, uh, I think it's 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 CCC4, right? It's, a, it's four Cs. 
Um, they are now have they have won a bid to build the largest infrastructure project inside of Colombia. So right? it's infrastructure building. It's That's inf- what China well, China's just in, investing in infrastructure. Well, exactly. Well, because imagine <laughs> yeah. these are countries that need infrastructure. Right. Yeah. So this is how they take advantage. So this is what they're doing in Africa. This is what they're doing in all um, developing or third world countries. E- exactly. Mm-hmm. And so imagine this is. This is is Colombia's metro project. It's a subway project. This is this multi-billion dollar, multi-decade long project. But now think of this. Who is going to be the provider for the biometrics for if you have your information, kind of like your information for your metro card? Who is going to be the provider for like the Wi-Fi inside of the metro, inside of the subway car? Who is going to control where these stops go to? Like there's just so many things surrounding this deal that are just should be incredibly concerning. And the fact that our relationship with Colombia, we have a very deep intelligence relationship, deep security relationship. This is a problem for America. That's almost the same thing we're concerned about with with uh, Huawei building 5G in the UK, is that you're letting China control this really important aspect that intelligence does go through, that secrets do go through or could go through. But that's that's exactly it. That's, yeah. that's, that's the second part that it builds upon, right? Because right now Huawei has the second largest market share of the Colombian cellular market. And Huawei funds Colombians to travel all throughout to Colombia and especially poor Colombians, impoverished Colombians, to travel to China and to travel to their factories in Beijing and to travel to all of these, to to experience all of these amazing things, right? And And they fund their educations. And it's only a matter of time where Huawei is going to outpace the, the, I forgot who the the first largest uh, cellular provider is. And I mean, like Huawei is just setting themselves up to be the, to to essentially be the 5G choice in in Colombia. And we cannot have that. What are we doing about this? I mean, are we educating? Are we pleading? Don't, don't do this kind of a thing. Or, I, I mean, what could we do? The Colombians so far have stated that they will not sign on board any sign on officially sign on board brick. Right. But it's this is the equivalent of saying, well, you know, I'm not dating this person, but he takes me out to dinner. He pays for everything that I own and we go to prom and I'm going to a wedding with him. It just this the, the, there's no logic here. Yeah. And so I just I really I, I think there's I understand there's financial and infrastructure needs from the Colombians. But I think these short term wins are not in their long term interest. We mentioned at the, the top of the interview about their neighbors, Venezuela, um, and, and you talked a little bit about this in the piece. And, and I want you to, to, to weigh in a little bit here on it. Are you concerned that that Venezuela's horribly socialist bankrupt, corrupt society will inevitably influence Colombia. I'm I'm con- I'm more concerned about the government, not the society, right? So the society in Venezuela is not the problem, right? The Colum- the Venezuelan people are not the problem. It's the it's the Venezuelan it's the regime. The regime is what has it's what's been this cancer on the Venezuelan people. And I think what I'm very concerned about. So right now you have like FARC dissidents inside of Venezuela and these FARC dissidents are allowed to mine gold illegally and to grow cocaine and traffic cocaine. And these FARC dissidents have said, we want to attack the Colombian government. We want to resume our war against the government. Imagine one day if they're on the border and they start attacking the Colombian military from Venezuela. That can escalate potentially into a minor conflict or potentially into a war. That's incredibly concerning, right? That you have such a rogue regime inside of Venezuela who not only is okay with oppressing 30 million people and letting them starve to death, 
but potentially starting a conflict with the United States' closest military ally and closest ally, period, in Latin America. Hmm. Anna, I want to thank you for coming in and uh, and clearing this up and, and shedding more light onto this. Um, I know our listeners will appreciate it. No, this was great. Thank you so much. And that's it for another episode of Heritage Explains. Thank you so much for listening. Now, I have linked to Anna's expansive report on Columbia in the show notes, so please log on to read more. Also, we hope you are taking care of yourself out there during this whole coronavirus thing. Not only yourself, but take care of others the way that we should. And if you have some time, feel free to leave us a comment or... Better yet, give us a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. We really, really appreciate it, and it really does help. Also, don't forget to send us an email at managingeditor at heritage.org. Next week, we've got a brand new episode. We'll see you then. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Descher, with editing by Thalia Rampersad.